Hey there. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Time Talkers podcast. We're live and nationwide, worldwide now, thanks to iHeartMedia, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, wherever you download your podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm Burke Allen. We're in Washington, D.C., and our studios made possible by our friends at speakermatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a platform speaker, or maybe you're a meeting planner and you need speakers, everything's gotten thrown uh, asunder by the pandemic, figure out how it all works. Find one another once again at speakermatch.com. There's a new book out that has to do with something that has really bubbled forth into the national consciousness more in 2021 than perhaps at any time in history, and that is the climate crisis. The authors are Alan Miller, Derwood Zelke, and Stephen Anderson. The book is called Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, the Ozone Treaty's uh, Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. Alan Miller and Derwood Zelke join us on the podcast today. Derwood, I want to start with you. The book has a pretty stern call to action. Why now? Why is this so important now? Well, the reason it's so important is because we have somewhere between zero and 10 years to radically slow down warming to prevent the self-reinforcing feedbacks where the earth starts to warm itself from taking over the climate system, pushing us into hothouse earth and past a series of potentially catastrophic, indeed, certainly catastrophic tipping points. So we'll lose control of the climate system. It'll wreak havoc with economies, with health. Uh, It'll lead to food shortages, water shortages, mass migration. And this can all be set in motion somewhere in the next 10 years or less. Talk to Tim Lenton, a professor at Exeter University and the most accomplished uh, person on feedbacks and tipping points. And he tells us in no uncertain terms, we have between zero and 10 years, meaning maybe we're already at that limit and we will go past some of the tipping points. So time is now the critical element. It used to be we talk about not having enough money to do climate change. Uh, Now we're finding the money more and more. The limiting factor is time. We've got to make speed our main mantra. Derwood Zelke is the founder and president of something called the Institute for Governance and Sustainable Development. You guys are in D.C. and in Paris. And it's my understanding that that you guys, uh, your main focus is the reduction of these uh, climate pollutants. And one of them that you go after that I think about a lot because I grew up in the heart of the Appalachian coal fields is, is coal. Um, why is it that coal has this big red X on it? Why, why is that the target of so much of what you're doing? Well, I mean, what, what we're focused on primarily is cutting the short-lived super climate pollutants. Uh, and coal is important because um, it produces methane. And that's what kills the canary in the coal mine. But, but let me go back and set this up a little more broadly. I mean, we have to get out of fossil fuels across the board. That means getting out of oil and gas and coal as fast as we can. As we make this shift to clean energy, this is the, the dominant goal um, 
uh, until the Biden administration came in and started improving it. And, and that uh, was a goal that uh, for the next big climate meeting called COP26, the 26th year in Glasgow this year, I uh, had said, let's make sure we get to net zero with clean energy by 2050, 30 years from now. And, uh, and what we're saying in our, our work at the, the Institute has been to say, you have to do the work to get out of the fossil fuels, but pay attention to the fact that when you reduce emissions from fossil fuels, you cut the, the dangerous climate pollutants, carbon dioxide, responsible for up to half of all warming, but you also cut at the same time the co-emitted cooling sulfates. And when those sulfates fall out, which they do very, very quickly, matter of days to weeks, maybe a couple of months, they unmask warming that's already in the system from the carbon dioxide. And what that means is that in the first 10 years, you cause warming as you decarbonize and get out of fossil fuel. Probably at 2040, uh, this would be 20 years out, maybe you start getting net zero. You don't cause any warming, but you don't get any cooling. It's not till 2050 that decarbonization of the fossil fuel energy system gives you a little bit of cooling, and that's about 0.1 degrees Celsius. So, you know, you're, you go back to the comment about uh, self-reinforcing feedbacks and the tipping points and the fact that we have zero to 10 years, and you see that cutting emissions of fossil fuels doesn't give you any cooling for the first 20 years, minimal at even 30. You have to ask the question, what else can you do? And the answer is read our book because it's cut the super climate pollutants. Alan, um, you're the co-author of the book along with Stephen Anderson. They, the book, by the way, is Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now from Changemakers Books. And you can get it at Amazon.com, wherever you get your books. You have a background that, that is quite a bit different than Durwood's. And I want to talk to you about that. You're a, uh, an attorney and uh, sort of a big deal guy about uh, the legal ramifications of, of climate finance and policy. So uh, I'm going to be a little bit of an agitator here and ask you when, when Durwood talks about, uh, you know, shutting down uh, coal mines and getting away from fossil fuels, um, will that not throw the economy of the world into utter chaos? And how do you avoid that? Sure. Well, first of all, just to acknowledge that uh, Durwood is also an attorney. <laughs> and uh, for a number of years back uh, when we first met, I was uh, uh, supervised by him. So we go way back. And uh, I've been a great admirer, in fact, of a lot of legal work that he's done over his career. But to come back to your question, I think there, uh, first of all, the role of fossil fuels has already been, particularly with respect to coal, steadily declining. So the percentage of electricity generated from coal has been going down and the relative number of jobs associated with solar, wind and other clean energy is now vastly greater than the number of jobs associated with coal. And just today, in fact, I was hearing 
California Governor Gavin Newsom in talking about this note that in his state of California, the ratio of clean energy to uh, jobs from uh, oil and gas, there's no coal production there, but even just from oil and gas is five to one. So I think we're already very well into a transition where we're seeing more and more the reality that the future and the economic benefits are with renewable energy. We're also seeing that on a direct cost comparison basis, it's often cheaper to buy solar and wind power now than even to keep operating coal-powered power plants. So the economic arguments, while they were of great concern 10, 20 years ago when Derwood and I were, were both struggling with some of these issues, currently the economic issues really very much cut in favor. The, the challenge, as your question alluded to, is really more with developing countries where the dependence on, on coal remains a, a very large factor. And this has particularly been the case in India and China, two of the, of course, largest um, countries by population, but also in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. And this is a big issue in terms of the politics of climate change with the need to provide these countries with more technical assistance and more financing to help them through this transition. Fortunately, the Biden administration has in fact been supportive of this and has already committed to a fairly substantial increase. And I think we're gonna see a lot of discussion about going even further in the Glasgow meetings that Derwood just referred to, which by the way, will be the first two weeks of November. You guys do this at a very uh, high level, you know, uh, and you mentioned Alan, the Derwood uh, co-founded, served as president of the Center for International Environmental Law. Um, and as you guys do this at such a high level, Derwood, sometimes I think that, that people on the ground may wonder what they personally can do to help. And I want to get into that. And, and before we move completely off of coal, you know, I know that there will be lots of people in West Virginia and and Kentucky and other coal producing states who are listening, uh, you know, I've got lots of, of family and friends back there and they may say, well, geez, you guys, uh, if, you know, China and India are still uh, going full speed ahead with their coal, then, you know, what good does it do for us to, to cut off our nose to spider our face and throw, you know, tens of thousands of, of families that rely on, on the coal industry or other fossil fuels out of work. And I will tell you, Dur, when I was in China a few years ago and was amazed in Shanghai at the, the level of pollution and was told that it was because of those coal-fired power plants. So I guess my question to you is, you know, what does it matter what we do here in the U.S. if China and India are just going to blow that off and do what they do? Well, uh, I, I, my, uh, my sympathies go uh, to the, the people who have to switch jobs. Uh, and I think it's very important to acknowledge the challenge and to help with that transition. But the transition is, is happening. Uh, Alan mentioned the, the favorable cost comparison. Uh, it's cheaper to run, uh, to, to build new 
uh, renewables than it is even to run the old coal plant. So, yeah, the, just on economics, we're, we're making this transition. And then for, for health, because you avoid a lot of on-the-ground pollution, it helps um, keep people healthier. Uh, and because of climate, every single ton that we put in to the atmosphere to warm it causes increasingly uh, irreversible damages, every single increment. So we uh, take uh, our opportunities to slow our emissions, reduce them, and innovate so we become leaders. I mean, this is what the U.S. does, the best of any country in the world. We create the future because of our technological genius, our ability to innovate. And then with politics, we're able to lead. And because we also have more money than a lot of countries. So, so I think what, what I would say to you and your friends and family in West Virginia and other um, coal mining districts is that you know, we have to do this. And it's a, it's a war, basically, that we have to win. And we have to enlist you in this war, help you make the transition to renewables or whatever other kind of job will be better for you in the future and then lead the world in this and bring China along. If China doesn't wanna come, then we're gonna outcompete China on the technology. Right now, we're not doing that. China makes more uh, solar panels than we do. And so we're, you know, we're catching up on some things here, but our historic position is as a leader. And that's where you know, we can shift back now to the super climate pollutants and what President Biden has done since he took office is to say several things. He said, you know, the, uh, the effort in the UN Climate uh, Convention up until the election of Biden was to say that we need to uh, limit warming to no more than two degrees Celsius. That's double what it is right now. And we need to focus on 2050. Biden comes in and says, oh, no, no, no. Uh, we have to limit warming to 1.5 maximum. That's degrees Celsius at 50% more than today, but, but less than two degrees. And, uh, and at least have to keep that in sight, even if we, we go past it a bit. We got to be able to keep it in sight. And 2050 is too, too far away. So uh, 2030 is the new 2050. We have to make this decade the decade of action. The next thing that Biden and, of course, his climate envoy, John Kerry, have said is we also have to do the super climate pollutants. You know, this is uh, the, the unique um, new governance approach. I mean, you got to do the fossil fuels, too, but you got to do the super climate pollutants to cut the warming fast right now. And, um, and so they're, they're on their way. And uh, one further innovation is the global methane pledge that Biden has put together with um, the European Union. And it's already been announced at the last major economies meeting that Biden put together just a couple of weeks ago. And we'll get a further announcement on Monday, the 11th of October, uh, about new countries joining. And then it'll uh, be formally launched in Glasgow the first two days of the COP26 when the heads of state are there.
Alan, um, to Derwin's point about these super pollutants and this this accelerated time frame, which I have to tell you, it sounds pretty scary that if we don't get things moving before 2030, that bad things can happen. I want you to break down what these things are so that our listeners will understand. So you call super pollutants essentially four different things, if I have this correct, hydrofluorocarbons, methane, black carbon, and tropospheric ozone. Now, to the average guy who's not a scientist, average lady, goes, what is that? What are these super pollutants? Let's break those down. So what are uh, hydrofluorocarbons? Sure. So, so hydrofluorocarbons are more easily referred to as HFCs. Right. And they are chemicals that have been widely used as refrigerants and in air conditioning. And ironically, were introduced as substitutes for ozone depleting chemicals some couple of decades ago. So they don't deplete the ozone layer, unlike the chemicals they replace, but they are very potent greenhouse gases. In fact, about 1200 times as potent. And they're uh, fortunately in this category of short-lived, meaning that they don't last in the atmosphere for centuries, unlike carbon dioxide. And so this is part of the problem that Derwood was referring to with the challenge in reducing carbon dioxide. It's very, very long-lived, and it's also in the short term associated with the sulfates, which will, as he said, unmask um, some level of warming when we reduce CO2 for the next couple decades. So HFCs, fortunately, are one of the um, success stories we have of the last few years and indicate the possibility for doing more um, of what we propose in our book. So it turns out that an agreement was made Uh, not under the climate convention, but under the convention that deals with protecting the ozone layer to reduce by more than 80% the use of these chemicals, these HFCs uh, over the next, over coming years. And in the past year, coming back to your concern about China and India, the good news is that the United States, China, and India have all this year ratified the um, agreement. In the case of the United States, we're, we're in the process, but we have taken the action needed. So China and India are actually a bit ahead of us in having committed to making the necessary reduction in this one key short-lived climate pollutant, okay? Um, shall I continue, uh, so, Well, let me ask you, so, so sure. you have four of these. So this one is essentially refrigerants and coolants what do we use instead of that? How do we keep sure. our, our, our homes and uh, cool and our stuff in the icebox cool? Sure. So the good news is that there are a variety of chemicals which are already being introduced um, by the chemical companies, the DuPonts and others that have been in the works and for which there are some transition issues. They're not, there's no one chemical that works for everything in between uh, mobile you know, air conditioners for trucks versus uh, home air conditioners and the like. But that transition is in fact ongoing. And 
it's another set of, of primarily man-made chemicals. There are circumstances in which carbon dioxide and other natural um, substances are being used. There are even some uh, devices using air. Um, and in fact, just as an indication of the opportunity as Derwood mentioned for technological innovation, there was a multi, there was a, a contest which coincidentally was in fact sponsored in part by the government of India to bring about commercial substitutes for room air conditioners, which is a very um, rapidly growing market in India as people are becoming more able to afford air conditioning and the temperatures are going up. So India has many parts of the country that become extremely hot and it's only getting worse. And the contest um, was for air conditioners that would have one, that would be five times better from a climate standpoint, including both the replacement of the refrigerant, the HFCs, but also in the energy efficiency, because of course, one of the primary consequences of increasing air conditioning is increasing the demand for electricity. So this um, ongoing technological innovation, I think is, is part of the answer in that it indicates that as we create the incentives, as we agree, we have to make this transition. The market is responding. United States is a leader, as Derwood said, in innovation. And we're gonna see increasing availability of, of better and much less climate impactful uh, air conditioners in the years ahead. We've got four of these things. And, and again, I want to drill it down, gentlemen, to make sure that our folks who are listening have a, an understanding of what you guys are up to to try to make this happen. You say that cutting these super pollutants is the fastest way to decrease this warming. And it's got to be done over the next 10 to 20 years or else things get really shaky. Uh, these uh, HFCs are one. Derwood, the second one on your list of four is methane. So, uh, you know, I, I've always thought of methane as, uh, uh, <laughs> as being directly related to cows. So does this mean we've got to cut down meat consumption uh, in, in the world in order to make that happen? Or, or what's, the, what's the key to methane reduction? Well, methane, uh, now that we've moved the HFCs into the Montreal Protocol, which is the treaty that uh, protects stratospheric ozone, and, and by the way, it's the best treaty that the world has ever created to protect the environment because it solved the, the first great threat to the global atmosphere that we were destroying stratospheric ozone. And because those same uh, chemicals that were destroying stratospheric ozone are also very strong climate pollutants, that treaty has done more for climate protection than any other treaty. In fact, it solved an amount of the climate problem that otherwise would equal what carbon dioxide is causing today, which is about half of all the warming. So, so we should be worshiping this treaty and we should be inspired by it. Methane is the next short-lived climate pollutant that we need to take out. And it can uh, give us now the single biggest and fastest and cheapest bite out of the climate problem. It can avoid about 0.3 degrees Celsius in the 2040s, very, very fast timeline. Uh, 
the methane comes from you know, three primary sectors. The first one is fossil fuels, oil and gas, and coal bed methane. And with um, oil and gas, it's leaky distribution. It's flaring. It's um, uh, intentional release of gases uh, because you need to release the pressure and you don't have a sophisticated system to do that. And so you vent. And we're now able to measure with on-the-ground handheld cameras that um, make this invisible gas visible so we can see where the methane leaks are. You can use low-level flights and increasingly satellites to see the super emitters of methane. They show up from space. Now, if you show people uh, in the oil and gas and coal sector where the super emitters are, a lot of those companies are responsible enough to go fix those leaks. And also because in the case of natural gas or fossil gas, uh, it's mostly methane and it's a valuable fuel. And so if you plug your leak, you, uh, you can actually save money. So very, very inexpensive. And sometimes it uh, can be done at a profit. So the, the next category, uh, and they're all about equal, is uh, the waste sector. So when you throw away food waste, uh, it goes into, or even yard waste, anything that's organic, you throw it into a landfill, you cover it with dirt, and that takes away the oxygen. And in that uh, environment, it turns into methane. And so uh, that's another big source. The same with... Um, your wastewater treatment facilities, they can produce a lot of methane. We know the technological solutions to this. And uh, you cover the, the, the landfill, you put in pipes to collect the methane, you use it as a fuel, either on site or you put it into a pipeline and, and, uh, and sell it, as long as we're uh, using these uh, chemicals, which may not be forever. It won't be forever. So the, the third category is, um, uh, no, but I'll, I'll stick with waste for just a minute because you asked the question about uh, uh, how our diets are. Well, you know, when you're, um, when you're figuring out how to eat, you know, whatever you eat, eat all of it. Don't throw it away. You know, look at the uh, expiration date and realize it's probably um, a little further along that you can still use this stuff. And there's a movement to try to correct those dates, you know, sell by, eat by, right. to give us a little more leeway. And so, yeah, there's some personal choices there. Uh, but then you get to the agricultural sector, and that's the one where, you know, the the trickiest part probably is. And, and the first part I would say is um, uh, manure legumes from uh, concentrated feedlots and dairy farms where we're raising um, cattle and, uh, and other ruminants, sheep for that matter. And a manure lagoon, which is a horribly smelly, messy phenomenon, gives off a lot of methane. But you can cap it and you can capture that methane again turn it into a fuel, use it on the farm, save money doing that. And you have to maintain the, the, what they call a biodigester to do that. But this is getting to be more and more um, common. Californians requiring this and, 
and other jurisdictions are. So, so you can see the changes going on there. And then with cattle and the sheep, you can change the type of food that you feed them. You can put in different additives, including a certain kind of seaweed that reduces their enteric emissions, their, their burps, the gas that comes out of uh, cattle, for example. And, and we're still learning how to do that, but, but we're, we are learning. And then there's even uh, in breeding. So you can breed more efficient uh, cattle and, uh, and reduce methane emissions that way too. Or if you prefer, you can start correcting your diet and eating a little less meat. Now, there's nothing that's going to ever happen to take away everybody's hamburgers. But I have to say that if you go to certain places now, you buy the Beyond Meat Burger, and it's just as good. It's pretty so, amazing. It's pretty amazing. And, and it makes us, you know, healthier, too. So, but, but that's a choice, you know. That, and, and if you talk to young people, you'll see so many of them turn into vegetarianism. And you ask them why, and they look at you like you're, like you're a, a slow old person. And they say, because <laughs> I can be, because I can do something personally to help protect the planet. Now, rice patties also give off methane. And rice provides about 20% of the calories for the world. But there are strategies for that as well that can reduce methane from rice. So we're learning. And when you deal with farmers, you have to be careful uh, because they, they don't necessarily like to change their practices. You want to instead say, uh, why don't we shift subsidies here? Because we are helping pay for the, the farmers to stay in business. But we'll give you more of the subsidy for reducing methane and, and take it away from something else. So you know, we have to take care of the farmers. Um, they're, they're critical for feeding the world. And we have to help them learn how to reduce methane in the process. There are four of these super pollutants, and Derwood and Allen, uh, along with the co-author Stephen, say we don't get a handle on these things pretty damn quick. In the next 10 to 20 years, bad things will happen. The third on the list is black carbon. Allen, what is black carbon? Sure. So black carbon is much more commonly referred to as soot. So it's not a gas, which is why we refer to of these as pollutants and not as greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, and, and HFCs. The black carbon are particles that, uh, because of their dark color, while they don't last in the atmosphere very long, are very potent sources of warming. And the benefit, again, is that um, they can be reduced fairly quickly. The sources of the black carbon is first and foremost from cook stoves in developing countries, from wood, from biomass, wood, and charcoal. And we're already very much involved with attempting to replace these sources of, of, of cook stoves because of their health impacts, the air pollution that they cause, and in many developing countries, the very time-consuming process for women to go out and, and collecting the wood that's necessary. So the, again, just as with um, methane, there are a lot of additional uh, benefits to helping reduce black carbon emissions. There's also a fair amount that comes from uh, 
diesel engines if they're not adequately regulated. And this is an issue again in some developing countries with diesel trucks, um, less of an issue from the United States in this, in this instance. You're not telling us that we're going to have to get rid of our fireplaces at wintertime. (laughs) We can still gather around the the hearth at Christmas and sing carols, right? Uh, Absolutely. uh, uh, I'll paraphrase uh, Charlton Heston. You'll take my um, wood stove away from my cold, dead hand. (laughs) um, It'll be... but mine is super efficient and does have a catalytic converter. So I'm, well, I'm probably safe for a little while. Uh, <laughs> black carbon, by the way, is a horrible health pollutant. It kills about 7 million people a year. So still. we have, yeah, still. So we have very high incentive. We're getting rid of that just for public health purposes. And, and, and this is something that even in China and India, you know, they're acutely aware of. And they're, they're making more and more effort to reduce these air pollutants because it kills uh, the rich, it kills the poor. If it doesn't kill you, it shortens your life expectancy considerably. The fourth of these super pollutants on, on the list uh, is the one I have no idea what this is. Tropospheric <laughs> ozone. Derwood, break that down. What is it and why do we need to get rid of it and how do we do it? Well, there are two kinds of ozone. There's the good ozone up in the stratosphere, and we need that to protect us from the ultraviolet radiation that causes skin cancer and cataracts and suppresses our immune system. And that's one of the the key accomplishments of the Montreal Protocol. Tropospheric ozone is a ground-level ozone that um, is primarily formed from uh, methane as the precursor, also other volatile organic compounds. And then in the presence of sunlight, that turns into basically urban smog. I grew up in Los Angeles. And uh, (laughs) when I was growing up, there was a lot of smog. And you could um, count on uh, being sent home on a smoggy day because kids couldn't play outside. Sure. It was... uh, it was a tough uh, period. So we're, uh, as we do catalytic converters and we reduce the, um, these precursors and now especially methane, we're going to get rid of tropospheric ozone. It's a health hazard and it also damages crops. This is very important because um, the, the damage to crops is not only making it more difficult to feed the world, but it also suppresses the function of um, forest and grasslands to serve as sinks uh, that store CO2 because it it interferes with photosynthesis. And that's the process that pulls CO2, carbon dioxide, out of the atmosphere and puts it into the biomass and into the soil. The book is called Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. It's part of the Resetting Our Future series from Changemakers Books, a division of John Hunt Publishing, uh, two of the three co-authors, Derwood Zelke and Alan Miller, join us. Stephen Anderson is also one of the authors of this book. Um, all right, so those are the four that, that I guess you could call the low-hanging fruit that we got to get out of there right now, uh, according to what you guys uh, are, are involved in at a very, very high level. Alan, if, if you're just an average guy or an average lady, 
and you're trying to, you know, feed your family and get to work on time and, and just do you, what can you personally do to help this along? Or really, is it out of our hands at this point as individuals? No, it's a, it's a very appropriate and timely question. And in fact, we attempted to address it in the book with uh, some of a list of things that are relevant and doable at the, for individuals. I've, uh, just going back to some of the points that uh, Derwood was making reference to, there are definitely some policies such as reducing leaks from pipelines, which can be done only by large companies. But then there are many other of the actions listed, including how you manage your food waste to try to be um, more responsible, which again is also in your own economic interest, not to to waste food. Um, Some uh, choices, dietary choices, which again are being made in any case for for uh, health and economic reasons and um, modestly less uh, beef consumption. Uh, choices about, for example, uh, how what type of stoves one puts in. There are now a number of jurisdictions which are attempting to um, uh, restrict gas um, cook stoves and uh, promoting induction electric ones which uh, I happen to have put one in and can attest that uh, it took a little bit of getting used to, but the benefits of an induction electric cook stove are considerable. So um, there are many steps along that line. And again, we're very pleased to have included some in our book. And I think Derwood, you have an even more extensive uh, directory of such things at the IGSD website, right? Right, we collect strategies that the individuals can do, and and I'll I'll add a couple to the list that Alan started with. You know, if you are an investor and you have any money in the stock market, you know, take it out of bad companies, put it into good ones. That'll actually make you more money. But you know, because a lot of the the dying industries are the ones that are the most polluting. So pay attention to your investments. And then pay attention to your politicians. I mean, you have to vote for people who are capable of helping save the planet. And it's not always um, Democrat and Republican. And I've been doing this for a very long time. And remember all the wonderful Republicans who were so good about this. I think of John Chafee, who was chairman of the Senate uh, Committee on Environment and Public Works, and just a great champion for environmental protection. Uh, we have lost some of that uh, bipartisanship today, as, as we all painfully realize. But there are leaders across the aisle, and they've got to step up and, um, and be more aggressive here. And again, you know, the, the U.S. is going to suffer. I mean, we've seen the impacts from floods to droughts to extreme weather events, the hurricanes that are pounding the the Gulf Coast and and that are setting off oil spills as well. I mean, this this is not the future we want, not the future we should leave our kids. And it means we have to move fast and we have to move on the super climate pollutants. So tell your politicians 
this is good for America. And uh, in many cases, industry, including for the air conditioning industry, the cooling sector, they're all for the restrictions that are forcing the changes and the improvements in efficiency. And they're the ones who led the charge with Congress to implement the, the HFC phase in under the Montreal Protocol. You know, one of the things that, that I should point out about this book, uh, if you're listening, you're going, wow, this, this is this is all good, but it sounds like it may be above my head. I, I do think that the three of you did a pretty good job in breaking this book down into some non-technical language that really explains how these gases and pollutants, uh, especially those four we talked about, are disproportionately super important to make all this happen, uh, to get rid of those so that the accelerated global warming at least begins to, to dial back. Um, uh, we're almost out of time, Alan, and I don't want to sound alarmist here, but look, the name of your book is Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, and Durwood did put it out there earlier. We're basically uh, in a you know a 10-year sprint to get this done. Uh, or else bad things will happen. How much of of the bad things that Derwood just mentioned, Alan, do you think are directly relatable to global warming? The uh, you know the the hurricanes uh, this year, the, the horrible wildfires. Anecdotally, these things seem to be getting worse and more frequent in the U.S. But are they really? And how much of that has to do with with the climate change? No, it's a great point. And let me also just thank you because we did try very hard <laughs> to make this intelligible and uh, to avoid, you know, just having something that could only be understood by policy wonks and, uh, you know, graduate students. Um, but the response to this issue of um, what, what is the contribution of climate change is actually a very timely an important one within the field of climate science. Until relatively recently, the answer was a very simple one. We don't know, and right. we couldn't tell. But in the last three, four years, a field has developed in which, because of the increasing understanding of climate and the sophistication of climate uh, models, it's now possible to do something called attribution science, which as its name implies, is the association of specific extreme events, which can be hurricanes, very intense rain, as we've seen flooding, for example, in Texas and in, in uh, parts of- New York City. You in know, in New York hurricane. City, yeah. exactly. And to not to say, absolutely, this is only because of climate change, but the way this- science works is to say, we would have increased the probability of such an event by 50 times or 100 times so that something is very, very unlikely to have happened were it not for the change in the atmosphere. Or in some instances, um, there still are certain types of events, such as the frequency of hurricanes, which are still much more difficult to attribute. We know they can become much more intense because of the temperature, higher temperatures of the water that provides energy for hurricanes. We also know that um, air temperature is associated with increasing 
uh, holding of water vapor. So the likelihood of more intense rain increases quite steadily with temperature. And there are a number of, of, of factors which we can, we can pretty well, as the term indicates, attribute in at least the probability of such events, thanks to our improving knowledge of climate change. And in closing, uh, the answer is that many of the extreme events of very large economic consequence, the, the tens and even hundreds of billions of dollars in damages, which are scaring the daylights out of the insurance industry, are uh, increasingly being viewed as pretty much the consequence of climate change. Derwood, I've so, got a 16-year-old son, and I wonder <laughs> if we don't get a handle on this, according to, to what you're saying in the book, you know, in 30 years, what, what is the world going to look like for him when he's a, you know, 46-year-old guy? If we don't get off the dime, it's going to be a dark, dark future. And we're going to be fighting, you know, apocalyptic battles over water and food with uh, millions, hundreds of millions of climate refugees roaming the world trying to find a safe place to live. This is the Lord of the Flies. I mean, this could happen. And, you know, you I'll go back to your your uh, question for Alan uh, just for a moment as well, because. The attribution science is not very sophisticated, but you know we've known with climate models for many decades, the Nobel Prize in Physics was just awarded to climate modelers going back to the 1950s and 60s to help us understand the physics and the chemistry of the climate system. So we've known a lot for a long time. We're just getting better and better. One of the great scientists, uh, Wally Broker, late... Uh, scientist died a few years ago. I mean, he, he described it as, you know, the, the climate system is like an angry beast. We've turned it into an angry beast and we're poking it with hot sticks. And so we, we know that the consequences are going to be bad. We're just able to be more precise in saying this bad consequence is now absolutely impossible without the climate change we're seeing. So, so your son should be thanking you for making uh, this podcast possible and for reading this book and getting this message out. And I, I did um, assign my neighbor, who's um, a young 14-year-old and, and friend, the responsibility of reading this book so he could give a book report on it. And uh, he read it twice, found it intelligible, we've discussed it. And so it's, it's accessible. And, um, and I'm very grateful that you're helping spread the word. So thank well, you. You're very welcome. I appreciate you guys being here. Alan Miller, Derwood Zilke, and uh, Stephen O. Anderson are the authors of Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now. It's available from Changemakers Books, Vision of John Hunt Publishing. All right, boys, you've got your marching orders. you got stuff to do. <laughs> We're counting on both of you. If it's going to be All that right. bad, then get in there and fight the good fight. Well, thank you we for having all right. Thank you so Take much. Care. And thank you for listening wherever you are, whatever you're doing today. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Thank you to our sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com. I'm Burke Allen. Get out there and make it a great day. Bye, everybody. <laughs>